Are you a fan of vampires? Then check out Vlada a Dracula Tale on Facebook and on Twitter for more information about an exciting new graphic novel coming soon from me and artist Ken Hunt. We take the entire story of Dracula and we gender swap the cast. This is not your traditional graphic novel. It's very akin to the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein that you may have seen or read about. Amazing black and white illustrations and covers by Ken Hunt, as well as by Tim Vigil, Kara Nicole, and many others contributing to this amazing project. Keep an eye on the Vlada A Dracula Tale Facebook and Twitter for more information about the exciting Kickstarter coming late October. Hello, kitties! It's your old pal, John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper, and you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast. That's right. <laughs> An old ghoul friend of mine, Mistress Zeneca, wanted to wish you a beast of a Halloween. So I thought I'd tune in for a moment and let you know that I'll be watching as they review cancelled shows episode by episode. <laughs> My favorite shows from the small screen. So with that, kiddies, be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs> Welcome to the exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television series in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are not talking about a television episode, but the precursor to a TV series... The TV series War of the Worlds is the direct sequel to the 1956 science fiction movie, which blew everyone away with its amazing special effects based on the novel by H.G. Wells. And I believe this is the very first adaptation of Wells' novel. If I'm mistaken, was there a silent film, Mr. Zeneca? Uh, this is the first visual uh, representation, because the Orson Welles was uh, you know, earlier than this. The, so War of the Worlds actually came out uh, August 26, 1953. And it blew everyone away with the Technicolor, and uh, this is the first time that a science fiction movie was actually taken seriously. Not seriously as in, you know, everyone ran to the streets, but seriously as in a movie with special effects could actually be dramatic and good. It was a blockbuster. It was. It was very successful. And uh, Criterion Collection recently put out a brand new Blu-ray of it, and it does look beautiful on Blu-ray in HD. Uh, I watched it, because I've seen it so many times, with a commentary by Joe Dante. Yeah, the colors are just spectacular. Uh, they remastered this perfectly. They took the old Technicolor blue, green, and red film strips uh, and run them through again, got the copies, then they uh, pumped up the saturation and really made the, the colors more in-depth, more than just a, a direct video transfer would. It's gorgeous. Absolutely recommend getting the Criterion Collection. I recommend it on Blu-ray more than DVD, but if you can't afford the Blu-ray, that's fine. The DVD is also as nice because it is Criterion Collection. Um, I didn't read the booklet that came in the Blu-ray, did you? It was like a little pamphlet thing. It wasn't quite a book as much as like sometimes other Criterion Collections get like a you know, they get like a, like almost a magazine, like a micro magazine in there. 
You know, actually, I did not look at that thing. I'll, I'll have to take a look at it later. Um, I just thought it was a flyer. <laughs> well, I'm not at home. Are you at home that you could what, – what, what, what's in it of uh, great interest to uh, sci-fi fans such as ourselves? Well, uh, the inner booklet is actually uh, – the inside is an article called Sky on Fire by Jay Hoberman, basically talking about War of the Worlds and it is, its creation and – uh, you know this version of the Criterion Collection. Plus, they have cast and credits, and special thanks and acknowledgments. Not very much in this little booklet. Gotcha. Who's the artist for the uh, the cover art for this disc? I believe that's on the back of the Criterion Collection, right? By the way, would this be considered services or goods and merchandise that I'm complaining about? Services. Ser- services. Okay. If you don't have the Blu-ray handy, that's fine. I just I didn't bring mine with me. I, I, I have the the DVD version. I'm looking at it, but it doesn't say the artist. Huh? Maybe it's online. It has a lot of, has a lot of text, but. All right. While you're looking for that, I'll I'll, get, I'll say a couple more things. So one of the things I noticed is that the uh, one thing I absolutely love when you put the disc in the menu screen or whatever has the eye of the um, of the tentacle. It looks like it's like blasting out rays. Um, which uh, they talk about uh, on the commentary. Um, Joe Dante found that um, piece that gets smashed open by our hero uh, when they were like digging up like all this old stuff uh, buried below, buried not necessarily buried like buried in the dirt, but you know in the bunkers below Paramount Studios, and they found the uh, the uh, you know one of the contraptions for the uh, Martian's machine. Yeah, I can't find it anywhere on this, so I'm going to have to skip that. What, what's the name of the scientist from the movie that became famous with a famous comedy, sci-fi, horror television show? Oh, Dr. Forrester. Dr. Clayton Forrester. Uh, Mystery Science Theater 2000's mad scientist who shot, who shot Joel and Mike into space. And then, of course, his daughter, played by Felicia Day, uh, shot um, Jonah into space. <laughs> what was the first time you'd seen this movie? I had seen this movie a long, long time ago. I remember it as a, a kid, um, although I don't really remember this movie being all that bright in color. Uh, I think I was seeing it on uh, television that was about to go out or something. But, uh, yeah, I saw it, and I just chalked it up as part of those, like, lines of B-movies, like, you know, the brain that ate the U.S. or whatever, you know, all, all, the, all, the, all those old kitschy B-movies. I thought it was kind of classified within that until I got older and started to appreciate the differences in filmmaking. I think I saw it when I was a kid, very, very young. Uh, I don't remember seeing it in school, but I do remember my parents saying, you, you like this. This is a very cool old movie. And I think I saw it on TV. Um, you know, the multiple reruns that it had. Yeah. yeah. I think even today... You see the effects used in this movie, and while they are cheesy, and you can tell how they're done, you know, overlaying of films and, and colorization and stuff like that, it just has such a genuine classicness to it. You know, when the the bullets are, are trying to hit the UFOs and this bubble kind of appears, you know, that's done with multiple layers of film, and the shots are just kind of overlapped to give that effect and it's just a flash you know when when the bullets hit the glass to when you see it and that i can believe in the 1950s just blew everyone away 
because if I were to show this to a child, it would blow them away. Um, but today, it's just, I don't know, it has that feeling of genuineness that you just can't get through CGI. The uh, I always really gravitated towards the ships themselves because they were just so incredibly menacing and they would that the death ray that they would shoot out and man when they're fighting the army they got stuff flying out of them ships left and right it's the green stuff on the side it's the ray you know they're 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 killing everything and anybody and they definitely it's definitely 1956 because they're like just disintegrating people and you know you look at the, like the Tom Cruise movie which we will talk about later on probably we have a long time to cover the show but we're not going to dedicate an episode to the Tom Cruise movie the Tom Cruise movie um they were disintegrated disintegrated like it, it, kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer you know when she would stab the vampires oh and they just go like ah and then turn to ash right that's what they did in the, in the Cruise movie in this movie they they just they just completely evaporated um, and I think uh, when we get into the novel, we'll find out what the Martians were actually doing to people, which was a lot more in the Cruise uh, Spielberg film, only because that was in 2005. So things had definitely changed and standards of what they could show, you know, in a movie were very different than they were in 1956. Yeah, yeah. In the book from H.G. Wells, uh, War of the Worlds, at the time, like, it was a brilliant piece of literature although a little bit dry, it tells a story of a man who has no name throughout the entire book, no name, and his brother. And it's told as if he's telling a story to someone. And, what, and in this movie, because technology have ch has changed from when the book was, was made in the 1800s to uh, 1953, technology has changed. And so the focus of the, of the book which is how insignificant humans are to these creatures. We are absolutely insignificant, and the book points out that fact at every turn. The War of the Worlds movie is more about the human struggle against the aliens than anything else. So it, it, it shows a lot of the military. It shows the religious connotations. It shows um, all the preparation that, we're, that the military and the police and the professor is doing uh, scientists in order to overcome these UFOs. It's never really gotten down to the point where the utter hopelessness, the utter despair that is actually portrayed in the book. Uh, in the movie, they drop a nuclear bomb on the UFOs and it does nothing. And that's the only point where you could say, okay, well, you know, humanity's lost. That's it. Yeah. I, I found the religious connotations in the movie um, very interesting, considering that they weren't there in the H.G. Wells book. You've got a priest that kind of wants to establish communication with the UFO and then uh, gets disintegrated. <laughs> the book also didn't have a female character as one of the main characters, so that is definitely a difference. Paramount had rights to actually make a movie of War of the Worlds from 1924, and they just never, it just never happened. So Paramount had the rights, they did nothing with it, and then up comes along uh, uh, Byron Haskins, who decides to actually want to do the film. Some great sound designers, great sets, and revolutionary tricks um, 
to show like the, the sparks and the glowing and all the, all the neat little uh, film layered tricks that they did were all hand done. The fire that's in the movie is real fire. People were <laughs> actually put in some sort of peril for that. Um, it, it's just beautiful. It definitely has this overall um, feeling of it being um, one way and then just like crash landing into an absolute horror show. Yeah. The ending is very religious. You know, you have the priest getting killed and then of course it ends at a, 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 a church um, with our main yeah. kind of two characters getting reunited. Um, and it is very funny that we are talking about War of the Worlds and it was released by Criterion in 2020. What is it that kills the Martians? <laughs> uh, as it is in the book and in all iterations of War of the Worlds so far, what kills the aliens is our own bacteria. The bacteria that we as humans and as species on this planet have worked uh, to develop tolerances to and an immune system to handle them in uh, the alien worlds of Mars, they have no bacteria. And that is pointed out in the H.G. Wells book, that there is absolutely no bacteria on Mars, even though we know that to be you know, not quite true, but um, there's no bacteria on Mars, so therefore the Martians are just start dropping out of the sky because these bacteria are invading their systems. They have no way to defend themselves. I think that would be an issue with any sort of planetary movement. You know, the, the, the different microbia on that planet is unique to that planet alone. Yeah, and what do you think of the alien design themselves? Did you know that the director made that with his daughter? Oh, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, um, they made that over a week. They made that thing over the weekend. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, and I believe his daughter is in it. I don't remember who's in the Martian costume, but uh, yeah, they, him and the director and his daughter made that over a single weekend. Uh, Joe Dante is uh, always fascinated about that, uh, that they didn't have the alien yet, and that's what they had to come up with. Um, and that alien does carry over into the TV series. We do see that alien again. We see other aliens like it. They're a lot more vicious and scary, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah, in this movie, it doesn't explore the harvesting of humans for food uh, that it does in the book. Um, I haven't seen the show that we're about to cover, so I don't know if it's there, but I'm looking forward to seeing that. There's also a currently now a War of the Worlds TV series uh, from the French. Uh, came out last year. Only watched a single episode of it. Was not a big fan. Um, and of course, I just bought the uh, Spielberg film on Blu-ray. Uh, sorry, on DVD, and I still enjoy that. I know you're not a big fan of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and then I'll there, get into more de detail on that later. <laughs> but there's also like some uh, War of the Worlds uh, like uh, directed DVD garbage films from you know studios that make a quick buck on a movie based on a film that's in theaters. Yeah. The yeah. um the commentary sorry the DVD also interviews uh, Gene Barry and Ann Robinson like old archive uh, interviews. Yes, the interviews on the Criterion edition are fantastic. Uh, lots of background information, too much for us to actually delve on, into here on this podcast. But uh, there's how many hours of extras on that? I mean, at least six to seven hours it seems. And the um. 
there is one member of the cast from the movie who does appear on the TV show. Oh, really? Who is that? She, uh, she's the main character. Anne Robinson will return on the TV series to reprise her role to talk about the Martian invasion of 1956, which a lot of people um, years later, because from 56 to 88, um, you know, public opinions about it believe it to be a hoax. They believe it to have been like an attack by the Russians or something. Mm, using okay. war machines that they didn't that they didn't quite understand, and the whole thing about the Martians being completely fabricated because nobody really saw the Martians. They only only uh, only um, you know our two leads, uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester and Sylvia uh, Van Buren, and the crowd that that got outside the the crashed Martian spaceship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just see the little uh, tentacly arm there at the, at the very end. Right. Um, and do you know what was funny about the nineteen, uh, the two thousand and five movie? What? Uh, both Anne and Jean play the grandparents of, uh, play the parents and the grandparents of Tom Cruise's uh, ex-wife and the kids. Oh, really? They show oh. up at the very end of the movie. They come out of the house after um, he comes up the steps with, you know, comes walking down the street with his daughter in his arms. You know, and the mom goes rushing out to grab the daughter. And then, uh, then you know, the parents, you know, come out and wave to him and give him a nod, even though they're probably not a big fan of his. He kept their daughter alive. And then out from behind them steps the son. Aww. As the family is now reunited. He did exactly what he was supposed to. He kept his children alive. You know, his son ran off because he's, uh, you know, while he's getting into trouble, wanted to join the army in the middle of a war invasion. <laughs> probably not the best time if you have no experience and you're like some 16, 17-year-old high school kid who got busted for stealing dad's car. Yeah. <laughs> but that is interesting. Yeah. Those two actors did come back for the 2005 film. That was a great little bonus feature uh, hearing them talk about it. So, yeah, she came back for the TV series, and we will get to that episode eventually. Well, also a person that starred in the War of the Rose 1953 movie that we have talked about on a previous uh, podcast at, at length is Carolyn Jones. Carolyn Jones is in the War of the Worlds as uncredited role as a uh, a blonde girl. <laughs> So I believe she's at the square dance, and so uh, she's just credited as blonde. Um, but yeah, it was one of her first acting roles. Um, one thing I, w- I always wanted, uh, and I don't know if they ever made it, did they ever make War of the Worlds like toys based on the ships? Uh, you know, I don't know, but they must have must have had some sort of merchandise to promote the film. I don't know. I'll, I'll look that up, and I'll have it on in a future podcast. Yeah, it's interesting that I'm like, I've, I've like looked for War of the Worlds toys and stuff like that, and not a lot, not a lot of stuff comes up, but we can definitely uh, do a deep dive to find out. Yeah. It's like, I, I got to say that the tripods, because they're tripods in the novel and they're tripods in Spielberg's film, um, those have been made. I, I swear, I've seen tripod war machines. You know. Mhm. And uh, do you know what comic book series turned into a standalone film? Uh, fought the Martians in the second volume. Second volume. No. What was that? Okay. Uh, written by Alan Moore, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume Two. Oh, you know, I never actually read the Volume Two. Oh, okay. So you read Volume One. 
I did. Okay. Yeah, Volume 2, they fight the Martians. Huh. And they, one of their own betrays uh, humanity to the Martians. How the Martians were able to... Uh, um, I don't remember all the details of the betrayal, but he gets his comeuppance when um, uh, Doctor Mr. Hyde uh, rapes him and then eats him. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> but yes, the Martians are the villains in the second volume. Uh, in the Marvel Universe, uh, there is the Martians exist in an alternate future timeline, or they existed in the past. I can't remember. I didn't really read that story, but uh, he's like one of these time bouncing superhero characters, very obscure. Has teamed up with like Spider Man or something because everyone has. Um, he even shows up like one time or whatever, and he's like, "Spider Man, it's me." Uh, Kill Raven, I think his name is. I, it's like we fought the Martians together from Mars, and Spider Man's like, "That was like years ago, dude. When I was like in like just starting out as Spider Man." He's like, "It was yesterday for me." <laughs> but yeah, the War of the Worlds has actually been adopted in adapted adopted adapted into Marvel's continuity. I guess because it's public domain, that it's still part of continuity, but it's not like a story people bring up all the time. And at this mm -hmm. point, now that we're in 2020, and Marvel has this sliding kind of scale, you know, timeline scale thing, um, like Captain America woke up after 9-11 now, um, and the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man were part of, like, the 2000s, not the space race in the 60s. Um, mm -hmm. You could say the Martian invasion happened in the 50s, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's interesting that they can do things like that. So, um, but uh, yeah, there's a there's also many War of the Worlds comic books as well. Mars Attacks also has a owes a lot to War of the Worlds too, don't you believe? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah the Mars Attacks is pretty much War of the Worlds, except more cartoonish. So looking it up, there are apparently a lot more War of the World toys based on Spielberg's film, but it's only all I'm finding for this film that we're talking about are model kits. Okay. Yeah. That was a big thing back then. Yeah. Definitely all model kits. Single model kits, ships, or double. But they're red, too, which is weird, because the ships do not look red whatsoever. No. They look no. silver. Uh, the, the actual ships were made out of copper, which was melted down later and used for a fundraiser. Oh, interesting. Uh, do you know uh, what 80s sitcom uh, young child's father is murdered at the very beginning when the Marsons first appear? Oh, who? Uh, Papa Papalopoulos from Webster. Oh, really? Yeah, he's one of the three dudes who gets like just murdered. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, that was uh, again. That was by Joe Dante when he was talking about it. But people don't know who Joe Dante is. Joe Dante directed um, uh, Gremlins and The Howling and uh, my 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 dead ex girlfriend, and uh, he was the writer of The Goonies. Yeah, cool. iconic 80s director, um, cool. you know, carried over into the 90s. Uh, his movie, which was in the vein of sci-fi um, matinee films, was the film Matinee, starring um, John Goodman, who's trying to find the perfect town to shoot his next big sci-fi monster movie. Mm. And he decides okay. to pick a town in Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a good movie. It's a good movie, too. Uh, I think he's directing, like, um, Ants giant ant movie or something like that. Okay. So he's like uh, he's like a main character in the film and then becomes kind of like a secondary main character behind like the, the kids who are running around the movie trying to, you know, worry about the, the, the Russians as well as like making the town look good for their big Hollywood hotshot director. 
when this movie was in the theaters, this was taped in mono, so it wasn't actually a stereo broadcast. Um, the, the, the speakers, they actually, for this film, put additional speakers that had that mono track on it in the back of the theater so to basically imitate what stereo might have actually sounded like, but it, they're all playing the same track. It just kind of enveloped the audience in the sounds of the, of the alien invasion. Our Star Trek fans will recognize some of these sounds because uh, the photon torpedo sound in the original Star Trek is exactly the same sound as the skeleton ray that basically disintegrates people. It's like a spring that's banged on pretty hard, and uh, it was used for both productions. The, uh, the sound of the alien scream is pretty interesting because it's the sound of dry ice being pressed against metal combined with the scream of a woman played backwards. So combining those two things, that's what you hear when the, the little alien is rushing across the screen. That, ah! Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, they uh, that uh, I I on the commentary, uh, sorry, in the commentary during the bonus material, the uh, the sound conductor, you know, was playing the screeching sound of the alien on his uh, on his uh, keyboard. Yeah, uh, Ben Burn Burnett. Correct, um, an icon in the uh, realm of science fiction and such. It was just amazing. Yeah, the sound on this is just so crystal. It's great. The design of the aliens in the original H.G. Wells book, um, as you said, they are considered tripods. In the book, they are actually have three legs, you know, long, spindly, spiderly-looking legs. And in the, this movie, it's basically like electronic rays holding them up from the ground. And it's actually talked about in the movie itself the creation of these effects was basically like taking a Jacob's Ladder electronic device, putting a hair blow dryer on it, and then moving the sparks in the direction of the air to get that effect, and then it's layered on top of the film. So it's very different as for what you would consider and UFO would you know be powered by. It's raised by the rays coming from the ground, basically connecting it almost like, like a, a lightning bolt would. Um, and that's what uh, keeps them afloat, with early electric guitar sounds with that. This was the boom of the era with the sci-fi movies and such. Yeah. In this time of history, there was a lot going on. You know, there's the fears of the atomic war. Uh, there was interest in aliens and space travel. You know, we'd basically just begun a space program, and this was the first time that Americans had the idea that we could send anything to space and, and rockets were being shot off. So there's a lot of great interest in this. And it's pretty interesting from the, the technology of the 1890s for H.G. Wells and then the technology of 1950s. And as we go into the future, this story changes based purely on the technologies that have developed in that time. The story remains the same. The aliens will always come in. The aliens, you know, Grab people, burn people with the heat rays, you know, causing chaos, and then they all die by, by bacteria. But every time that this is remade, the technology of the era really colors how this is portrayed to the audience. In the H.G. Wells book, it's a horse and carriage. And there's a lot of information about him, you know, taking a, a carriage, transporting these two girls, you know, having things taken away. In the 
in the movie, they're traveling by car, they have radios, there's communication, uh, and, and there's a lot going on with the military. In the movie, the military was actually real. The Arizona National Guard was used for the military scenes. So the tanks, everything that was completely real. This is uh, definitely a, a favorite of mine, and I'm glad we decided to give it its own episode before we cover the um, you know we, we cover the meat of the uh, the show, which is going to take up most of our time. But that's all the notes I have basically about the War of the excuse me the War of the Worlds movie. Yes, I I have a lot of notes, but I'll parse them over time. Uh, this movie is very interesting. I, I recommend everyone to see the Criterion Collection. Take a look at the extras on the disc. Listen to the commentary. There's a lot more information than we could give you today. Look at the, the uh, manta ray style of the ships, which is unique to this production. Uh, get a taste for what was 1953. You know, the square dancing, not a single black person in this film. Oh, yeah. There was no <laughs> black people in this movie whatsoever. Not a single person. This is basically a, a snapshot of the social construct for the 1950s. Uh, as soon as the woman gets to a place where they're kind of safe, she turns into, you know, serving coffee and donuts. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's a, a, a movie that has been heralded as one of the first advents of science fiction done by the first producer of science fiction writing, H.G. Wells. He was one of the originators of the sci-fi uh, genre. Every time it happens, every, every time it gets produced, it's a snapshot of that era. And the snapshot of 1953 is completely different than how we live today. Um, and just by that sheer fact, it makes it a little bit more interesting to watch with that new modern perspective that we have on aliens and society and how people would react in the situation, et cetera, et cetera. Tune back in in a couple weeks as we begin our first episode coverage, or two episodes, maybe one, two episodes. I forget how long these episodes are. Have you looked to see how long these episodes are? I have not yet. I'm waiting to be surprised. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we should probably find that out ahead of time so we know how many episodes we're doing at once. Uh, I think it's an hour-long show because it was just like uh, Friday the 13th as well because it was the same people that made both shows. Okay. The what what is the the um the our our good friend Jim Henshaw might have some people for us to have on the show. I've been in contact with a couple of them. A couple of them have declined. They were not interested. But uh, we'll have to see who else we can get on. There have been several people connected to the show who are for, unfortunately passed away. The show's lead passed away, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but we'll have to see who can, we can get on from the show to talk about it or other science fi aficionados to uh, you know to enjoy the show with us. Yeah. And I will have plenty of, of deep dive information on all things War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, etc. Check us out on Facebook at The Dead TV Podcast. And we just actually did our 125th episode, which was the finale to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, where we had the um, one of the actors from the show on with us. And you can find us on Twitter at ChrisDSAV and at Elegantly Kinky. And all the episodes of the podcast can be found on Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. And we'll be on Amazon at some point as soon as I figure out how to get on that. And that's uh, all the time we have here on the Dead TV Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our coverage of the World of the Worlds movie. Good night.
could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guys need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant! Look! They slash across country like scythes, wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs. They're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies, whom no one has ever seen. <laughs> Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. 